0: welcome to north bay christ the king you're listening to our weekly service message podcast join us every sunday morning at 9 30 and 11 o'clock at our campus location in birch bay washington thank you for tuning in uh, you may have to try and follow along um Pastor Dan asked me to preach, and I said, sure. Um, What do you want me to preach on? What type of series are you doing? He's like, it's a standalone week, so you choose. I said, that's dangerous. (laughs) And uh, I decided uh, that I wanted to talk this morning about complaining. Um, Here's why. Because I believe that the best messages that preachers can preach come from what they're learning currently in their life. So if I could just be vulnerable, because one of the greatest things I've learned from Pastor Dan McAvoy, and I appreciate about him, and he has developed in me, and it's probably one of the reasons why a lot of people are even here, is because the man that you see preaching is the man you get in the coffee shop, and he preaches with a raw vulnerability that you don't see a lot of pastors. They kind of have to have this like all put together, but... Dan's real life. He's the real deal, and he taught me that, so I'm just going to preach on something that God is really challenging me about, and maybe it will connect with you, Um, but uh, so that's where this is coming from, and if you want to complain about anything I say, go ahead and uh, send Dan an email, Um, or better yet, if you don't know this, Hillary uh, has a degree in technical writing, so send her the email, um, just like full of grammar errors, and she will respond back to you. But I have this question, and I can't control this shame, so follow along. Um, where has complaining or arguing cost you joy or relationship? Not necessarily your own complaining or arguing. We're not talking about you yet. We're talking about everybody else. But where does it cost you joy or relationship? Like the the moment was kind of ruined because everyone was having fun, but then somebody just started complaining, or everyone had made a decision. Like this is a story of my life as a middle child. Everybody else made a decision, and then like it wasn't what you really wanted. And so you have to go a different direction, or it's not really, um, or maybe it's in a relationship where you're trying to uh, communicate with somebody, and no matter how hard you try, I've been married almost 12 years, and no matter how hard I try, my wife just can't figure me out. And I can't figure out how to communicate with her. And so there's this back and forth that happens in our like, most meaningful relationships. And, and we can find ourselves complaining or arguing and what ends up costing us is the two things that we really want in life. Like God created us as relational people to be not only in relationship with Him, but in relationship with other people. And it's in those relationships that we find joy It's not in circumstantial, superficial happiness that comes and goes based on what happens when just we benefit. But we actually experience joy, true joy, in relationship with other people. But it's these two things that can compromise it. Let me just give you another example. I like to call it date night. (laughs) And it starts like this. My brain has this idea. Light bulb. Tonight, I'm going to be romantic and I'm going to ask her where she'd like to go to dinner. That's what my brain says. And so then my face says, Hey, where do you want to go to dinner tonight? I'm going to let you choose because I'm a nice guy. Without fail, she answers. Sushi, of course. My brain says, You fool! It was a trap. You knew she was going to say sushi. It doesn't matter how many times you ask her. She's never going to change her answer. And no matter how many times she answers sushi, you're never going to go, that sounds like a good idea. (laughs) But what my brain is telling me this in my mind, it's not telling my face to shut up. (laughs) And so what happens? Okay. But the damage is done. She's like zero to 60 like that. Date night's ruined. If you were romantic, you wouldn't ask asked me. You would just know what I like. And you would take me there and surprise me. And there would be little babies, angels flying around with harps and arrows and roses and sushi fountains everywhere. And I'm going, that sounds miserable. But the point is, We miss each other. We're not understanding. And what happens is I end up complaining without even trying to. So here's where I want to turn it on you. Have you ever found yourself like complaining like on accident? (laughs) You didn't realize you were complaining? Because it's quick and easy to find and identify when other people are whining or griping and they're grumbling. But when you got a case of the grumbles, like it's usually called something else. Like I'm just venting. Or I'm processing or I'm just being honest. My mom always hates that one. She's like well your honesty needs to stop because your honesty is complaining and you need to go do the right thing. I'm like but mom, I'm 32 and this is still a conversation. Like we're having it after after church at lunch. I can feel it already. But complaining becomes this blind spot. You'll notice, if you've seen me preach before, this will be one of the only sermons where I'm not telling a story about my mom. <laughs> I've learned. But it's this blind spot that we need to take, we need to take note of. Because it, it actually compromises things around us. It compromises our relationship. It compromises our joy. And it actually leads to conflict. And it does so almost systematically. Philippians 2, which is the passage we're going to unpack today. Verses 14-15, Paul writes this. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing. So that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God. Shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Do everything without complaining. Um, I tried helping my children understand what the word everything meant biblically. It means everything. And they didn't really understand. And um, I'm trying to understand, like, where did they, like, learn how to complain sometimes? And you don't have to... My kids are at that age now. They're seven and eight. They're in the back. Hi, guys. um, Where they are brutally honest and, like, but they're honest about you. And then they ask you questions that you don't have answers to. And when I I asked them, like, where did you learn how to complain, or, or where did you, where did all this complaining come from? You know, they just go, well, we learned it from you, Dad. And I'm just like, oh, no. I got caught again. So we need to be aware because people are watching, not just in our relationships, but the world around us that is living in darkness that we're called to be shining like bright stars of joy to. So here's some simple cautions of complaining that we, should follow, that we should pay attention to. It compromises communication. We established that. But as communication is compromised, what complaining leads to is it actually is going to cost us credibility. Think about the people in your life who are constantly complaining. Like, do you listen to them and their best opinions? No, like they're not a credible voice because they spend most of their time complaining about stuff that's just silly. you're like, you kind of get tired of it. It wears down the relationship over time. It erodes things. And ultimately, for that person, it compromises their credibility. But if we're not careful, that blind spot means we can end up in that place. The next thing it does is it actually creates complacency. The more people that I interact with, and there's not a lot of them, but there's a number of them, who spend more time complaining about silly things and less time doing anything about what they're complaining about. All they're doing is complaining about it and what happens in their mind and psychologically. Just getting their complaint out leads them to complacency. And instead of fixing the problem or doing anything about it or engaging the conflict or talking to the person that they should be talking to, they end up talking to everyone else about it. And in the process, they exhaust themselves and they're so tired, but they feel so right and vindicated that they won't even go engage in the conversation with the person where the relationship is fractured. Because they know that complaining cultivates conflict. So all conflict is the result of unmet expectations. And when people aren't meeting each other's expectations, if they can't have open lines of communication, they're never going to actually have resolve. And what happens is when we complain for no reason at all and we justify it as venting or processing and we're not actually considering the good of the other person, what ends up happening is we go and we actually create and cultivate conflict where it doesn't exist it's unnecessary. Who's it helping? Maybe in the moment it's helping like our little finite self feel a little bit better. But if we're honest, we know it's actually not helping anything at all. And so that is why I think Paul is onto something when he's writing to this church. It's this group of people. Here's what I want to tell you about the Philippian church. They're in this little place called Philippi. They're a Roman colony, and they could not be more diverse. They have people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. You have rich people, noble people, poor people, slaves, servants. You have people from different cultures, different religious um, backgrounds, different countries. And they've all come into this place called Philippi where Paul planted a church, and now you have this new community forming that is incredibly diverse, and the only thing that people agree on is who Jesus is and what he did for them. And Paul is trying to bring people back, saying, this is what matters, this is what matters, this is what matters, this is your source of joy, this is your source of hope, who Jesus is, what he did, and you need to stop grumbling, fighting, and arguing and complaining with each other. Because you're making Jesus look bad. Is essentially what Paul is writing in this little letter to the church uh, in Philippi. And he does it in this way. He's actually not very direct in his correction, there's no harsh rebuke in the entire book. But he packages the whole book about joy the significance and the power and the strength of joy and how it is to empower us to live freely. How we are to be a reflection of Jesus who epitomizes humility. The verses in chapter 2, before the ones we just read, he spends talking about the humility of Jesus who stepped off of his throne of perfection in heaven and stepped down into our brokenness and our mess of humanity to say, hey, I'm going to do what they can't do for themselves and I'm going to pay the price of their sin and their death so that they could have repaired relationship with my Father through me. That's why we get together. That's why we worship. That's why we sing songs. That's why we believe Jesus matters at all. And Paul is saying, hey, this is what you need to unify around. And the first way that he says, he gives them an action to do. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing. And it's significant. Why? So that no one will criticize you. See, we live so fearful at times of how people are viewing us or what they're gonna think about us. But as soon as it comes to what we care about being compromised, like we can turn the focus inward pretty quickly. And we can start caring about things that, that really don't matter that much. And we forget our purpose here in this world, we forget our call. To live a new life. To live free from those expectations. To live free from the fears of man. To live free from our own selfishness and sinful desires. See, Paul's also writing this to a group of people who are free. He's telling them, hey, you guys are free. You should be living fully and experiencing joy and be unified In Christ, and and here's what gives him the authority and credibility to say that he's writing this from prison. See, Paul's writing this from a Roman prison under house arrest, and he uh, had a Roman guard chained to him for half the day, and then they'd come in and switch out. And every time that guard would come in or come out, Paul didn't know if it was to get shackled up to Fred or if he was having Bob take him out to get executed. And Paul, from this place, because of his encounter with Jesus and because of the significant hope he had in Jesus, he said, hey, that stuff, whether I live or die, it's nothing. To die is gain. Jesus is everything. Jesus is what matters. Jesus is what brings joy. Reflect him. Look like him. Live lives. Have the attitude Of him. It wasn't one of dominance. And selfishness. And self-righteousness. And vindication. And being right. But it was of humility. And service. And love. And grace. And righteousness. And our call as his followers. Isn't to be right. But to be righteous. But here's what's behind all of our complaining. Here's why we do it. And we don't even realize we do it. It's because we have this deep, deep-rooted desire to be understood, to be heard, to be known, to be valued, because we were created by a relational God in His image to be in relationship with Him, to experience that in relationship with each other. So that's how we're created and hardwired, but when sin entered the picture, we have this tension And we have to hold it in tension because we also have this driving force to be right. And how quickly, how unintentionally, oftentimes accidentally will we trade our call to be righteous in the name of being right. And we will trade righteousness for rightness so many times. And it's because we failed to gain understanding first. The whole point of this morning is I hope that you understand that failing to gain understanding first will undermine our desire to be understood. We were created with this deep, deep deep-rooted desire to be understood. How often are you trying to communicate with somebody and you you realize that it's just not registering? They're not hearing you and you... And and even in the moment, this happens with me, you know, if you know me, you know, like ADHD brain, it's just all over the place. And I can get so frustrated, not with the person, but I've exhausted my brain trying to find the words to communicate something in a different way or a new way. And it's just not landing. And that frustration is oftentimes alleviated when I'm reminded that there's relationship intact. And when there's relationship, then people are willing to go there and figure it out. And they're not going to be assuming because they're actually taking the posture of gaining understanding. See, failing to gain understanding first and foremost undermines our desire to be understood. Um, I picked on my wife for being late, so I'll pick on myself for her. Um, Even the score. One of the things that I do that I don't even realize I do it half the time, but my wife is quick to remind me when I do it every time. So is my mom. Um, My wife just does it nicer. Um, People will be talking to me, and I don't know, Mom, if I did this when I was a kid, you could tell other people. But they'll be telling me something, and I'll figure out what they're saying, or so I think. So I cut them off. And apparently I cut people off in the middle of their sentence and it's frustrating. And what they're experiencing is like they're not feeling understood because I'm not taking the time to understand. And so there's something significant about taking the time to slow down and hear what somebody has to say fully before listening. Um, I, I work with leaders, and um, that's a lot of what I care a ton about is developing leaders. And um, uh, one of the only universally recognized like leaders in the world was Nelson Mandela, transcending cultures and countries. And anyone like would say he was a good leader. And when asked where he learned to lead, because he was a strong but quiet leader, he would say, "Well, he learned it." the way that he led, his leadership style, from watching his dad who was a tribal chief and they would go to these great tribal councils and everyone would sit in a circle and his dad, who was the most influential leader in the room, was the last to speak. Not because he had to have the last word, but what he saw was the value of listening and letting everyone else feel heard and understood And like they contributed. And then he could then speak with an informed opinion more confidently, more calculated. I go, wow, that's profound. That would do wonders in my friendships, in my relationships, in my marriage. With my kids who are learning how to figure out their emotions. And uh, instead of me cutting them off and saying, why would you do that? Me stopping and and seeking understanding what's going on. And helping them find the words to articulate what's going on that they don't understand. See, when I change my parenting, we we see changes in behavior. There's something significant about this. See, Paul David Tripp, he's a pastor and author, and he writes this. He says, you don't have to understand everything in your life because the Lord of wisdom and grace understands it all. It's the paradox that many of us don't handle that well. We were created by God to be rational human beings, and we carry around with us a desire to know and understand. That's a tension that we hold. He continues, he says... But we must not forget that we will never experience inner peace simply because all of our questions have been answered. Biblical faith is not irrational but it takes us beyond our ability to reason. I think this very profoundly sums up this tension that we live in. And it gives us permission to want understanding. There's nothing that's wired in us. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we put ourself and our understanding in front of our faith, it affects our relationships with not just people but with God. See, when things don't make sense, and so often I want to find the source of my peace in having the answers. I've been in a prolonged season um, personally where I just want the answers. And if I just had the answers, I would have peace, and then everyone else around me would stop suffering. Because when I'm uncertain, and I start to spin, and I can spin out, and it's crazy. I'm irritable. I'm frustrated. I'm frustrating. I don't fall through with anything. I'm forgetful. I forget everything, including the kids. Not really. But. When I'm reminded that that's actually not where my source of peace lies. It's not in having my questions answered. It's in the one who already understands. The one who already knows. The one who invites me into relationship and says, Hey, I understand it all, so you don't have to. And I find myself, when I'm, when I'm able to get back into this place... I find peace. And I find out that I'm asking the wrong question. Because when things don't go the way that I prefer and what I oftentimes find myself complaining about is followed by the question back to God, why? Why is this happening to me? Why aren't you coming through? Why aren't you answering my prayer in the way that I want Why won't you speak? Why are you silent? Why do you seem distant? Time and time and time again, the Lord graciously and gently and lovingly brings me back to the truth and He says, you're asking the wrong question. It's not about why. And so I have had to learn that when I'm in this place where my why questions aren't answered, I can say, God, okay, then where are you in this? Where are you in this? Where are you at work in this uncertainty? Where are you in the midst of all this that doesn't make sense? But I I trust you. And I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to understand it all. But I know that you understand. And I'm able to have peace and I stop complaining. And what happens is he's true to his word every time that we test him in that. And when his word says, seek me and you'll find me. And I stop asking why and I start asking where. And I start seeking him. I find him time and time and time again. And when I don't find the answer, I find the Savior who has all the answers. And I don't need to know what they are. That is a place of peace. He says, So that no one will criticize you. Live clean, instant lives as children of God, shining like bright lights. See, we are called to so much more as followers of Jesus. We are called to transcend the darkness of this world. And it's not by our rightness, but it's by His righteousness. (laughs) shining and living in and through us. And the world will see that when it's in turmoil, it's in chaos, and it's arguing and fighting and complaining, and it has all of its entitlement and its opinions and its right to say so. But when it gets rough and hard, what stands out is our peace. Our joy, our love, our selflessness, our righteousness. James, he writes a letter to the church in Jerusalem. He was the brother of Jesus. He was known as James the Just. And he's also writing this letter from prison. He was falsely imprisoned. He was uh, about to be executed. And he writes the book of James. Uh, If you want to go see what it means to follow Jesus practically and daily and we hear this from the brother of Jesus he says in James 1 verse 19 understand this my dear brothers and sisters you must be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to get angry human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires See, our human anger, no matter how right we think we are, no matter how vindicated we may be, human anger does not produce or convey the righteousness of a good, loving, gracious God. So we need to figure out how to stop dying on the hill of being right. Because our rightness will ruin relationships. I'm going to close with this. Rightness will ruin relationships, but righteousness will repair those relationships. And right relationships result in joy. See, when we can put our rightness aside... And stop ruining the relationships that it's not even about the rightness. Maybe the person just needs to feel understood, heard, loved, valued, cared for. They need to just know that, hey, you don't care about being right as much as you care about just being there. You want to mess with somebody that's going through a hard time, maybe even at their own mistakes and their own decisions, you show up in the middle of their mess without a lecture and just be there, don't be right. Right? That will mess with their brain. They'll go, wait, you're not going to tell me what I'm doing wrong and how you're right? No. Because that's not what righteousness says. Righteousness says, I'm going to meet you right where you're at. It's okay to be here, but it's not okay to stay here. Follow me. I, I know a way to get out. I know a way forward. I know some better steps to take. And we can repair those relationships. As the worship team closes, we're going to prepare for communion today. And so this week, I'm just going to ask, do you got a case of the grumbles? Like If you find yourself just grumbling around and can't figure out why you don't have joy, I got a cure for you. Gratitude is a cure for grumbling. You write down and take anything home. Gratitude is a cure for grumbling. When we find ourselves in that place, we can stop and be thankful. And as we prepare for communion today, it's a pause. It's a pause for us as the body of Christ, as followers of Jesus, to stop And take a step out of our mess, to take a step out of what we're grumbling and complaining about. To take a step out of the things that we can't figure out, we don't have certainty around, we can't control. And we can go, wait a second, where is my source of joy and hope and and why does it matter? And it's found in this person. The person of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 2 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. He says, let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Let us run with endurance. If there's anything that complaining and grumbling does, is it tires you out. It just keeps it going, and you can't get off the wheel. But stopping and being thankful and remembering what matters, we're able to take a step off. And maybe we're tired and maybe we're weak, but that is where Jesus, the God of the universe, stepped off of his throne to meet us down there to pick us up and to take a step with you. It's not to get to the destination, it's to take the next step step and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before. us. not the race we're trying to figure out. Not all of the things that put us at the center of the universe. Well, how, do we, how can we even do that? How does that even happen? Well, it says in verse 2, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who because of the joy awaiting him endured the cross disregarding its shame. See, communion is this, this sacred moment that we get to pause. And we get to remember not our past, not our baggage, not our sin, not our selfishness, but the selfless sacrifice of a Savior who said, I'm going to clean up the mess you can't. I'm going to pay the price that you can't. And then, as a family, you're going to pause and remember. Remember the price that I paid, the sacrifice I made for you as my bride. Collectively and individually, and in that together, you get to refocus and reorient on the joy set before you that's found in following me, is what Jesus is saying through moments like this. The ushers come and we serve this morning. We're going to reflect on the words of the song and say, Let the King of my heart. Have you surrendered your heart to this King who's good? Oftentimes when we take communion, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Where Paul says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself on the night he was betrayed the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it then he broke it into pieces and he said this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup of wine after supper saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood do this in remembrance of me and as often as you drink it for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until He comes.. If you read that passage in context, the verses before, what Paul's addressing in the Corinthian church is they're complaining and their division, and they're arguing and they're grumbling over silly things, and he calls them back to what matters in the sacred moment of communion so as we take the bread and we reflect on the body of Christ that was broken and beaten and buried for you let's eat together and in the same way we take this this little cup of juice a small simple emblem that reminds us of the blood that was shed that not only washed our sins away but it gives us new life. Let's drink together. Holy God, how sweet it is to taste the goodness of your love, your grace, and to be reminded that while we were still sinners, you died for us. That when we were still far away from you, you decided to make a way. When we were wandering around in our sinfulness grumbling and complaining, trying to figure out life on our own, you said, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to meet you where you're at, and I'm going to bring joy into your life. I'm going to give you a hope and a future. God, I pray that we would be reminded of what we have to be thankful for and all that we have to be joyful about as we serve you and we reflect you and we shine brightly like stars in a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.